in some ways, there could be no more perfect story to talk about for at the table than the one that I get the opportunity and, and really the joy to talk with you about today. Um, we talk about hospitality. We talk about politics. We talk about the ways in which those two intersect. We talk about trying to make sure that there's more of a human element to the things that we care about and just giving a damn more about the people in our immediate lives, our neighbors, our families, our political lives. And this story is perfect for that. And this, this, this argument is perfect for that. And there's also uh, a, a, a personal connection that I just can't wait to share with you. I want to introduce for at the table uh, two folks, one that you actually might have heard me talk about previously on episodes. Uh, but first, Julia Kernick, who's the director of innovation startups at the Markets Institute for World Wildlife Fund. Julia, welcome. Thank you for spending some time with me. Thank you for having me. And I also want to introduce Catherine Devine. I know her as Katie Devine. I also know her as my wife. She's the director of business case development, Markets Institute at the World Wildlife Fund. Katie, thank you so much for spending some time with me in our home in separate rooms on different microphones. Thank you for being in the office and leaving me the bedroom. Uh, the the fact that, that Katie's been involved in this project uh, and that Julia, you've been working on this, uh, and I've been hearing about it for the last several months, has nothing to do with this because this is a good project all on its own. And I want people to listen to this conversation and judge for themselves. But I I want to start with a little bit of background for people who aren't married to one of you uh, and who might be confused a little bit about why we're going to be talking about the thing that we're going to be talking about. And what what we're going to be talking about is this idea that people saw in the Washington Post recently and in a report that came out last year about the USPS should be Instacart for farm fresh food, an idea that came out of WWF and the Markets Institute. And, and people might have looked at this and gotten to the end and said, hey, is that Jared's wife? Or they might have gotten to it and said, hey, why do, why do the panda people want me to eat fresh greens? Like, how does this fit the mission. So can you explain a little bit, either of you, both of you, what this does for the conservation mission of World Wildlife? Sure, I'll take that one. Uh, so within World Wildlife Fund, Julie and I are both part of, as you said, the Markets Institute. And what the Markets Institute seeks to do is look at solutions to conservation that maybe aren't at the top of people's minds yet. We're looking at innovation, we're looking at ideas that are nascent, but have the potential to scale uh, in a nutshell. And we're looking at thought leadership. So how do we spark, spark thoughts for not only World Wildlife Fund, but other actors to take and move forward and run with them that maybe folks haven't, haven't thought about yet or haven't yet had the resources to invest in. So this idea at Farmer's Post, delivering fresh produce through the mail, utilizing the, the Postal Service, farmers, and other stakeholders came about and in, relates to our conservation mission because it's fundamentally looking at um, potential for reduction in food waste. And food loss and waste is a considerable contributor to climate change and loss of biodiversity. Um, food waste releases methane, which is a, a potent greenhouse gas that's many times more powerful than carbon dioxide. Um, and in addition to the potential to reduce food waste, 
it also has the potential to reduce uh, transport in terms of the Postal Service is already going to farms every day. It's already going to people's homes every day. And this, at this point, is a, an idea. So these, uh, these concepts of potential for reduction and environmental impacts need to be studied further before we can definitively say that it will reduce carbon dioxide by X amount or methane by X amount. But what we like to do at the Markets Institute is say, look, this is possible. Here's an idea. Let's explore it further and figure out a way to do so. Julia, when Katie was explaining this idea around our dinner table, to me, she said that one, that she was doing a lot of the the research on the back end, but this was your idea. How did you realize that this was an opportunity that the Markets Institute might want to examine further? Was it part of the conversation we were all having in the pandemic, or was it some other piece that came up because of the work that you've already been doing? Uh, a little of both. Uh, and and I think some of it's connected to, to one other piece I would add to uh, Catherine's answer there, or, or Katie, I guess I should call for, for this duration. But which yeah, is that- I don't know. I mean, I've known her for ten years now, and I can't, I can't really switch back. I can't code switch to Catherine that easily. I get, I will try and be professional, <laughs> and you do not have to change for the purposes of this. <laughs> well, uh, good to know. But the, I think the the other thing is, if you look at our mission, if you look at the vision of WWF, it comes down to not just nature but people. So it's really at that heart of people and nature, and I think this program came up because of some of that sort of synergy. Uh, it, I work with a lot of uh, farmers. I work in agriculture quite a lot, uh, usually looking at innovation and new strategies. Uh, I do have another project called The Next California. And as part of that, we're looking at developing the specialty crop industry in the mid-Mississippi Delta. Uh, and as we're talking about that, we really were debating, you know, what does a market look like? What is the go-to-market strategy? How does food get to people? How can we build something that is, you know, equitable to everyone, to farmers, to consumers, to the local community? And at that time, we did sort of discuss how food gets places. And one of the, you know, very minor points we discussed was, you know, perhaps the post office is a partner in some way at some point. But it was really left as this small piece as we thought about go to market. I would say that was about a year and a half ago. Uh, and then a year ago, uh, or, you know, just under a year ago, I would say, you know, probably more like April last year, uh, we were I was watching the headlines that I'm sure all of you were seeing that uh, farmers had massive amounts of food waste uh, as markets were ripped out from under them, as restaurants closed, as schools and institutions closed, uh, and those farmers couldn't pivot that quickly. So there was massive amounts of food being thrown out and plowed under, while at the same time, you know, grocery store shelves were bare. I certainly experienced it as a consumer trying to to find more food and watching our supply chains get broken. And I, I saw that both professionally in my work as I spoke to farmers, as I spoke to retailers. I saw it personally, you know, the lines at food banks and the inability to to get food to people, or and the, especially when it wasn't necessarily safe for people to be going out and waiting and standing in lines. And at the time, the post office was also in the news for their revenue shortfalls and facing a sort of yawning gap that was quickly approaching in the fall. And so at that time, that sort of little idea in the back of our heads sort of came 
to full force is maybe this is the moment, maybe this is the time that we can use the post office to connect farmers to consumers and solve quite a few of these hurdles at once. For people who haven't read the 800 word piece in the post or who haven't read uh, because their husbands uh, were forced to uh, because of an email sent last year, uh, the full report, um, what what is this project? Because we're talking around it a little bit and we've talked a little bit about how it started, but what is the the Farmer's Post idea? Because you're connecting the suppliers of the food, the farmers, you're connecting the consumers and you're connecting the post office, but how does that all work? Sure. So the idea is that the postal service is already going from farms uh, back to the post office, and then the next day to consumers. Farms have either excess crop in some instances, or um, you know, even within WWF, we look at farms a lot, both for Julia's work, but then also on our food loss and waste team and others, even outside of the pandemic and, and the massive amount of waste that Julia already mentioned, there were already losses on farm before it even gets to the consumer. Some of our research has shown that depending on the type of crop, anywhere between 2 to 50% is wasted on farm before it even gets to the consumer. So this is an opportunity also to reduce farm-level food waste. But the idea, to get back to your question, because I just get excited about talking about food loss and waste, is that farmers need markets. Farmers need additional ways to sell their food. Farmers markets have barriers. They're not available everywhere. Uh, they also require additional transport fees to participate. And frankly, consumers, some consumers regularly go to farmers markets. They are not in every community. There are lots of areas that are challenged by lack of food access, and some of them are urban, but many of them are also rural. Yet we found in the course of the analysis that the vast majority of the country, and if you look at the, the business case, there's a little map of this, has fruit and or vegetable farms within a very close proximity. Um, and the map illustrates it better than I can describe. Uh, so the, the plan is to show that at the end of a route or sometime during a route, postal service workers can pick up these prepackaged boxes that farmers would pack, um, pick and pack. And then because the produce would be stable enough to last overnight, they can then deliver it to consumers the next day. We point out that there are still some challenges. We would need a third-party aggregator to facilitate that link between the post office and the farmer and the consumer, because the postal service is unlikely to do that. Uh, there are certainly challenges with seasonality, challenges with postal service uh, over the last year. And these are all things that, that are known and why we would need to work out those kinks as the idea is further developed and hopefully piloted at some point. But fundamentally, the goal is Farm fresh produce can get delivered to consumers via the post office. Um, and Julia, let me know if I've missed anything on, on your end. I think the other thing to note is that um, this would be within, this is more post office speak, but one to two postal zones. So it's, it's fundamentally local in, in nature of the type of the farm that would be delivering to consumers. The only other piece I would add is, and I've been calling it an, an aggregator too, the third-party aggregator. I think an important piece of that is 
that it would be a virtual aggregator. So not a physical point that the food would come to, uh, because if you if you do that, if you need a warehouse and cold chain and getting the food there, you're going to end up with a lot of the same problems Catherine just highlighted of, you know, this will be targeted at urban areas, this will be targeted in major markets. Uh, we want this to be accessible to everyone. If you have a you know, sort of virtual aggregator where you as a consumer can go put in your zip code, see the farms, order from them on that website without having to go anywhere else. Uh, that gets, you know, sent to the farmer. It's all paid. You know, the payment goes to them. The farmer doesn't have to build their own website. The farm doesn't have to find their own customers and market. Uh, and frankly, the farmer doesn't even have to go on the post office's website to print their own label because if the third party aggregator is synced with the USPS website, then when the farmer gets the order, they can get the label and just print it and slap it on their free box from the post office, uh, the standardized box. So if it's if it's really that easy, all consumers can access it, all farmers can access it, even if they don't primarily sell to consumers. So you can decrease food waste even more uh, if it's a farmer who's selling to grocery stores and the grocery store doesn't want all of their produce that period or that type, uh, they can easily get that out. It, it removes that pivot pain point. And what I'm most excited about is if it truly is a virtual aggregator and a pilot works, you can go from pilot to national basically immediately because you already have the, all of the national transportation and distribution in the post office. And for people who want to see this map that Katie mentioned and that Julia has certainly been alluding to pretty strongly here. I'm going to make sure that the report itself and, of course, the piece in the post that summarizes the report are linked in the episode description for this conversation. But I want to talk about exactly what you're, you're talking about there, Julia, about the idea that this could be very quick to stand up. Now, both of you have mentioned that there are some problems, that there are some issues to kink, you know, with kinks to work out, and that this is an idea what would take it from an idea? And and I'm certainly, I mean, look, Katie and I have been saving, you know, food scraps and stock bags and, you know, going to farmer's markets. Those are memories that exist in literally every aspect of our relationship, of our marriage. When she started talking to me about this, I thought, what, what, a, what, a, what a beautiful project because it is, it hits so many of the things that we both care about, even just as people, let alone professionally, and certainly fits in with the line that we're talking about here. But we have to see it go from great idea that the three of us are obviously all on board with. And I'm sure that a lot of the folks who listen to this conversation will probably think, yeah, this makes sense. To the execution. Now, you've indicated that there might be a pilot program in the middle of that. That certainly makes sense to me. What, what do you see as the next steps? How does this begin to roll out? Because right now, it is just, as you've said, an idea. I think that is a, a great question. Uh, I think we wouldn't, first of all, I will say, I don't think we would have gotten to this point without the business case. Uh, so I wanted to give Catherine full credit for that because that has allowed this to become a conversation. Whereas before it was an idea, I think we've now progressed to an actual conversation uh, and the beginning of a, a model of what it could be. And it's brought in a lot more potential partners uh, and a lot more enthusiasm. So right now, I think our goal would be to build on that, again, towards a, a pilot. I've been having some great early conversations with the post office and with the USDA, uh, you know, very preliminary uh, at this point, but being met with 
a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of help. I think the pieces that are needed to progress from where we are now to a pilot are really twofold. One is wanting to make sure that the third party sort of virtual aggregator is more fleshed out. So understanding what that could look like uh, so that there is a little bit more of a an ownership model here uh, so that it's not something that we're asking the post office to take on full ownership of this, but to, to be a partner in it. And then the other piece uh, that has been ex- you know, shared with me is really understanding what that full market demand is. So I, I think the business case made a really great step is the, the first part of that. Uh, but there would have to be, you know, we were working with a, an idea. Uh, I think a next step would be building off of that to, you know, have surveys, have more detailed research with consumers to understand willingness to pay and what some of those rates might look at, you know, be needed for packaging and shipping uh, and to work with farmers the same uh, to understand a little bit more about farmer demands and needs so that from a post office side, it's not understanding the total market per se, but the more nitty gritty of what some of these postal rates and processes would look like. Catherine, I want to ask specifically about the enthusiasm and the stakeholders on your side of this because of the nature of the developing this business case. You've reached out to farmers. What what can you describe what Julia was just talking about? Some of the enthusiasm. I mean, who wouldn't want to sell more products and do it easily? I mean, this sounds like the, e- the the easiest pitch in the world. But what has been some of the reaction and the feedback that you've been getting when you talk to the the farmer side of this? Because I'm sure they have some of the same questions that that I'm asking, the same annoying husband type questions that that I'm asking. Yeah, I would think Julia's had more direct contact through the Next California project with farmers. But I think what we've seen with the pandemic is that there have been some farmers that have been really well set up to take advantage of this direct to consumer boom that has come from COVID-19. Some farmers that already had platforms and are tech savvy and had certain procedures in place to go direct to consumer have taken off and not been able to meet demand. For for those that have strong CSA platforms, um, community supported agriculture, for those that are unfamiliar with the term CSA, a lot of them have been sold out. These are platforms that help uh, a farmer plan their their harvest by essentially selling shares near the beginning of the harvest or the beginning of the season for the remainder of the season. And, and that's been great. The increased interest in consumers of fresh produce and knowing where it's coming from, seasonality and, and being able to cook more at home as a result of the pandemic was great. But not all farmers have been set up for that. Or there might be other logistical challenges that Julia alluded mm-hmm. to before that don't enable various farmers to, to take advantage, either because they primarily serve restaurants and may specialize in a given type of produce. Uh, and if a, you know, a consumer may not want a box full of only tomatoes and they want a variety or any number of other, other reasons that certain farmers haven't been able to tap these markets. So. I think that there is is definitely enthusiasm uh, in speaking with our our farm expert on the food loss and waste team, Lee, for a number of farmers. Like I mentioned earlier, these customer acquisition costs can be really challenging um, to get the word out. Right? Maybe consumers are interested but aren't 
willing, either don't have the time or the wherewithal to do research into what local farms might offer delivery to their home, if any do. Um, so I think there is a lot of interest in on behalf of farms. I think to, to Julia's earlier point, that is certainly an area where we need to do more research to understand how some of these things would work. I could potentially envision some future model where a consumer may be able to choose from multiple farms. I think that is a farm, farmer's post 2.0 <laughs> potentially. Um, but I think that uh, I think that there is a lot of opportunity there. Because right now, the the circuit that's imagined in this idea is essentially the the post officer goes to the farm, picks it up, brings it back, and then essentially brings it out either that cycle or the next cycle that they would have the same the next day, the same day, or within a day or two to wherever it's going. So this this is really kind of a a one point. At this point, and, and you're saying 2.0 is maybe they would have some kind of, you know, a collection of farms available. Yeah, it's certainly that's a future conversation, right? I think that this is a service that has a lot of potential. And I, I've seen a lot of really positive feedback from folks about the piece and, and interest in saying, ah, I wish I could have this now. I would sign up tomorrow. And that's wonderful. Whereas other consumers are, are really particular about their produce and saying, you know, I want to only get my apples and my broccoli and my tomatoes, and I don't want sweet potatoes or uh, ramps or whatever the case may be. And that, that would probably not be something feasible on the outset from this. But I do think that there could be opportunities based on other models that we've seen uh, for CSAs or for services like Imperfect Produce or Hungry Harvest that sell these so-called ugly produce um, where, where consumers have more choice. But, you know, I think regardless of that, there is demand. And I think to some of our earlier conversation, there's a real desire to have more fresh local produce on behalf of the consumer. But there are a lot of barriers. Uh, there are barriers that we mentioned before that farmers markets aren't accessible to everyone. There are barriers to delivery. Uh, some of the analysis speaks to that. The market penetration of grocery online before COVID-19 was pretty low. It was three to four percent, something something like that. And there has been just a an absolute spike in demand from that. And I think that will come down a little bit when things normalize a little bit more. A lot of people are going to want to go back to the grocery store. But speaking about the this uh, the SNAP benefits, the supplemental nutrition assistance program, um, you know, a lot of, there are very few online retailers that accept SNAP benefits. Um, there are the big ones are Amazon and Walmart, and there are very few beyond that. And however, they don't cover delivery fees. And if you've ever ordered groceries online, there's a delivery fee. Typically, uh, sometimes if you order above a certain amount, it gets waived, but there are also service fees, um, tips, and any number of additional fees that are they're expensive for for us at times, and let alone someone that is relying on these benefits. And I think that if we're able to get some conversations going to consider whether Farmers Post could accept SNAP benefits, that could be beneficial. And on top of that, I'd, I'd take it a, a step further that there have been some successful pilot programs where SNAP benefits have been allowed at farmers markets and they have stacked benefits. Um, I remember, I believe I saw one in Indiana, I can't recall, or elsewhere, if, if consumers or recipients use their benefits at the farmer's market, then their dollars go further. 
Um, and it's a way to get more healthy produce in, in the hands of people that need it and want it. And I know in at the table, you talked a lot about how do we um, not build more of a wall? How do we extend our table? And I feel like that's a real way to extend the table and, and make sure more people get access to the kinds of nutritious produce that they would like to have for their families. To me, this is a no-brainer, but I, I, I hope that there are conversations internally to say, okay, and, and I'm sure these are the stakeholder conversations with the post office or the ag department to say, okay, we want to make sure that these are all SNAP eligible and that, you know, your participation isn't, uh, you know, hindered at the state level or the local level because of some disagreement politically with, with these uh, ideas. I'm very keen on this and I'm glad that SNAP is a portion of it. Um, I, I wonder about the political questions, but obviously I feel like that's something that WWF as a nonpartisan, you guys are probably going to elide. This is an idea born at least somewhat in the pandemic and has essentially developed. And a lot of the research is based on Catherine, what you were just mentioning about here are grocery rates before and during the pandemic. Does, does the, need for this go away when all of us have vaccines or when we've all reached a, a period of relative normalcy again? I think that the, while the market will certainly change, and I think as Catherine said, we don't necessarily expect the super high rates of online grocery to continue forever. I do think that a lot of the a lot of the change in behavior is here to last. I think that we have seen a increasing interest in local food uh, and CSAs for a while. It has started at a small number, uh, but it has been growing regardless and continuing to increase. Uh, and what we're seeing now is that people have spent basically a year cooking this way, cooking at home, using more fresh produce, and it has been long enough that those are no longer a short-term fix, uh, but actually ingrained habits. Uh, and one of the sort of, if you speak to experts in the grocery world and in that sort of, who are looking at these trends, that is more plenty long to become an ingrained change of behavior that is, I think, very likely to continue, perhaps again, not at quite the level now, but to also not go back because people are now comfortable with it. They appreciate you know, having the ability to do that. Uh, and I think it'll be part of the sort of long-term changes that we do see coming out of that would be a sort of renewed focus on if you can access fresh food and if you can, you know, take the time to cook, that there's a lot more focus on that and eating at home. Julia, let me ask you specifically about stakeholders in this. We've talked a little bit about Department of Ag. We've talked a little bit about USPS. Uh, I know we've alluded to some you know members of Congress and uh, obviously the stakeholder side on the farmer side. Um, where are you with those conversations? Are there anything, are you hopeful? Are there anything, anything that you can report out or talk about at this point? Uh, because I imagine this is something, because it's a good idea, because it's gotten out the door a little bit that you'd like to see more traction on. Absolutely. Uh, it, I will say it's very early stage in a lot of these conversations, so I, I don't think I can report any deep commitments at this point, uh, but just in the past week, we have started to reach out to 
some congresspeople and some senators uh, on the relevant agricultural committees uh, have already heard back from a couple that they are interested in having more conversations and learning more. Uh, so we are excited about those and looking to continue that, especially around exploring sort of SNAP benefits and any other support for you know, low-income consumers, people who live in areas without access to food, uh, and other people really suffering uh, in the past year uh, around food access and equity. We have also seen a lot of excitement from some of the postal unions, uh, and that has been wonderful. Uh, so they're sort of proactive outreach and support of this, which is absolutely key. So I would I would add those to the list of stakeholders. And then the last group of stakeholders, which may not be immediately obvious, but I have spent much of the last year learning about the post office. Uh, and another important aspect of that, I think, is that 24% of post office employees are actually veterans, which makes the post office the single largest employer of veterans in the country. Uh, and so I've begun some early conversations with some veteran groups as well for really two reasons. One is around the increased revenues for the post office and therefore job security for a lot of veteran jobs, but also because veterans are sadly, as I'm sure you know, well overrepresented in uh, sort of food insecurity numbers and, and population. And so also looking at it as a way to, to perhaps address that issue as well. And so I think that some of the veteran groups will also be really key in, in you know, bringing this to fruition and getting the, the full coalition together. As Katie mentioned earlier, it's all about widening the table instead of lifting the wall. But it's also, it seems like a no-brainer. I mean, the post office obviously needs uh, needs more customers. The people need fresh produce. Farmers need reliable, uh, you know, market for for their goods. And it seems like everybody. Uh, and I, and again, I know this is the legwork that you all will be doing, and I, I'm. Certainly hopeful that you get the uh, the traction that an idea this good deserves. Uh, we've all seen worse ideas in politics gain more traction, so I'm I'm hopeful for this. Uh, I guess my my last question, and this is for the both of you, are either from specifically the pandemic phase or the larger picture, fifty thousand foot view of what you've been working on at the Markets Institute. What are the other projects? I know Julia and Catherine, you both mentioned Next California. And, and kind of how climate change will affect the places in the United States that can grow the certain crops. But what are some of the other things that are on your on your radar right now? Because I imagine that the pandemic has changed not just this project, but lots of other things that are on your plate. Well, I'll say that I feel like Julia and I get the opportunity to work together rarely. Usually we're bouncing ideas off, but this was a fun opportunity to work together and collaborate on an idea. So we are always looking for more ideas within the Markets Institute. Our goal is really to change, to make change at scale more quickly and elevate new ways of thinking. So if you have a clever idea about how to make our food systems more sustainable while also understanding that uh, business impacts are important or that you know we need to bear in mind both environment as well as people for Julia's earlier comment, send them my way or Julia's way, uh, because we're always looking for more. But in in your in terms of your question about what else is on the horizon or currently working on, uh, in January, we published another business case related to get uh, the potential to achieve net zero 
greenhouse gas emissions within the dairy industry, which is a pretty big deal to consider given that animal protein has pretty high greenhouse gas emissions relative to other kinds of, of protein. So the, the initiative is really promising. So I, I encourage you and, and your listeners to check that out. Uh, in terms of other projects, in addition to that, I am looking at ways to use stranded assets. So that could either be an abandoned shopping mall, underutilized land, or underemployed human beings to take the food system into the future. So how do we use things that are, are currently underutilized and come up with other ways to put them together or consider how they can be better utilized? So that we are using the resources that we have as we, you know, in other in other systems are depleting natural resources. How do we use the resources that we have? Julia, anything that you're working on that you want to discuss? The other two main projects I'm working on uh, separately than, than Catherine, one is the Next California, which we already touched on a little bit. And another one is looking at indoor agriculture. Uh, and specifically, it, it does tie into a few of Catherine's points there in that we're looking at, can you decrease the energy footprint that comes with these systems, both through the direct lighting use when you're replacing the sun and the indirect sort of lighting energy footprint that comes when you pack all these lights together and actually end up with excess heat and therefore air conditioning, even in winter, even in cold climates. Uh, so can you integrate with stranded assets? Can you use unique partnerships to drive down what is both a environmental concern, also a financial concern for these companies so that you can take advantage of some of the benefits that indoor agriculture does bring around decreased water use, decreased food loss and waste, decreased pesticide use, uh, and the ability to, to grow food where you wouldn't otherwise be able to grow it. Uh, and then I, I will flag one last project where we are excitingly getting to work together a little bit that is just kicking off is that looking at the sort of global supply chains of the 10 most sort of traded international commodities around the world uh, and understand a colleague of ours is looking at measuring those sort of the footprint of those supply chains and looking at where are the sort of biggest footprint, you know, where are the most greenhouse gas emissions, where are the most problematic areas. Uh, and so then we haven't quite gotten to it yet, but Catherine and I will be trying to understand what levers can you pull there? Is there a business strategy or an argument or uh, some kind of model that can be put in place to to tweak those problem areas once they're identified? So I'm also looking forward to that. Well, I'm just grateful that the both of you have allowed this stranded asset, me, uh, and really most husbands, <laughs> to help push the uh, the word out a little bit on this project. Uh, I am, as I said, I love this project. I love this concept. And I really hope, uh, having seen, again, a lot, lot worse ideas in politics gain a lot more traction, I'm certainly hopeful that this one uh, gets gets the attention it deserves. My guests have been Julia Kernick, who's a director of innovation startups, and Catherine Devine, who's a director of business case development, both with the Markets Institute at World Wildlife Fund. To the both of you, thank you so much for spending some time with me, uh, Katie. I know for you, that's unfortunately a, a, that ship has sailed. You're you're, you're stuck with me, but uh, Julia, thank you. I guess for spending some time with me and, and Katie as well. Thank you, <laughs> and thank you for having us. <laughs>